Greg, do you want to meet everybody? Or you just want to meet them on the podcast. I don't know that I need a full intro. I've listened to the podcast, so I'm familiar. I understand Jordan went to law school. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like, I think we're good. <laughs> Well, welcome everybody to uh, this week's episode of the RevOps Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Jordan Henderson, and I'm joined today, as usual, by Brandon and Jonathan. Guys, go ahead and do your thing. Hey, hey. Hey, guys. Cool. <laughs> and we have a, a special and awesome guest I'm very excited about, Greg from Cloud Kettle. Uh, Greg, you want to do a quick introduction of yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Brandon, Jonathan, Jordan. Um, my name is Craig Poirier. I'm CEO of Cloud Kettle. Um, we're a Salesforce Gold partner and a RevOps consultancy. Um, I don't know. How deep do you want me to go, Jordan? I could dive in. Or I, think- so I, I have a ton of background on you, right? So I, I know that you ran okay. uh, marketing ops at a digital marketing at a company that was bought by Salesforce. Um, then you were a COO. Uh, and then you decided, screw all that. I want to work on way more complex RevOps systems. And you you started Cloud Kettle. Um, and I, I believe there was, last time we spoke, there were some chess references and maybe some Star Trek references. So I'd brace the audience for those things to come. <laughs> uh, but, but but yeah, maybe, maybe uh, talk about that. I mean, obviously, your, your background is awesome, right? Like you've run mops at big yeah. companies, you've done through acquisitions, you've been a COO. Love to hear more about it. Yeah, so I can expand on that. I mean, that's all accurate and very compressed version of the story, I guess, of kind of 15 years. You know, my first digital marketing job was I, I got, um, I graduated with an MBA, you know, not as good as a law degree, but, you know, they're not everybody has yeah, flat, Flattery's going to uh, take you a long way, Greg. It's going to take you a long way. <laughs> yeah, he, did, uh, he doesn't need any more for, the, for his ego over there. Look. So, yeah, like, like many MBAs, I thought I knew everything and I uh, thought I was going to be a brilliant marketer. And I got hired at this uh, small regional cinema chain. And uh, as it turned out, I, I had no idea what I was doing because I didn't have any real world experience. So I suffered through a bit of that. But then very fortunately for me, um, that cinema chain and the entire industry was going through a period of consolidation. So we expanded from, uh, you know, a very small regional cinema chain that was like 21 theaters, I think, to being one of the largest in North America very, very quickly. And so I got to be part of that wild ride. And one of the things that happens when you're going through that kind of consolidation is um, if you can come up with anything that's efficient because a company's growing really quickly and they can't scale, uh, people probably let you do it. And so they, you know, I had a lot of opportunities where they would give me rope and I would run with it. And, you know, every once in a while I would get yanked back by the collar because I'd run further than the rope was going to go. But for the most part, I was really lucky because at this very specific point in time, um, and this was a long time ago, I really felt like this thing um, was going to be possible where we could send somebody a text message that had a mobile movie ticket on it. And I really thought this thing called Google Analytics would give us more insight into what people were doing on our website. And I was pretty sure this thing that was starting to burgeon called paid search could take off. Um, and we were sending out emails. And at the time, I think we had a quarter of a million people on our email list, which at the time was like enormous, but now is kind of immaterial. But I really thought that this exact target email platform, which became Marketing Cloud at Salesforce, probably had some legs. And you know, I was uh, I was doing some sales at the time as well. I was in charge of 
selling everything that happened that wasn't a movie and wasn't concessions. So, um, you know, all those ads that appeared in front of the screen, my job was to sell those, all those ads that were on the website, you know, we had an ad agency, the third party that was in charge of selling them, but I was in charge of that relationship between us and that third party and goosing more revenue out of it. And any way that you could squeeze extra money out of something that wasn't food or a movie ticket itself kind of fell to me somehow. And so, you know, I thought, hey, mobile tickets will charge an extra buck for that. People pay for it, and you know, these ads in front of the movie. And then I really thought we could make a lot of money running ads on the website, which was kind of a new idea. And so I was very lucky I was there at that exact sliver of time because that was a very specific moment in time before people caught on to that. And then at that time in doing those sales, we had a sales database. Uh, I think it was an access database, but I can't remember for sure. It was on three different computers. And, uh, because three different people were doing sales and I would sync them every morning. Cause I was the only person who could understand how to do it. I would sync the three computers every morning. And so I went online and I Googled some stuff. I'm like, man, I don't know that it is going to buy into this, but this cloud company called Salesforce, if I can explain to them what the cloud is, I think this would save me from doing this sync thing that I hate doing every morning. And, uh, they actually, uh, <laughs> rightly refused it uh the first time around but like a year and a half or two years later a year and a half or two years later they came around to it but anyways i was very fortunate that like what are the odds that you could be at that intersection of google analytics taking off adwords taking off salesforce taking off marketing cloud taking off and it just all that happening at once insanely fortunate that i was there and then i got recruited to radian six um after about seven years of that cinema chain, because um, a person I had an agency relationship with, he led our account in an agency had been recruited there. And he's like, oh, we really need to hire Greg. He, he loves this stuff. So I got hired at Radiant 6. And then very, very conveniently and fortunately for me, Salesforce bought Radiant 6, which was kind of like the perfect Venn diagram of intersection of things that Greg would love to happen. So I got to work on what would now be called marketing operations and a bit of sales operations um, as part of Salesforce at a time when those things didn't have that name. Uh, You know, we were digital marketers um, or we were helping the sales team. There was no name. It wasn't like a career path. And then uh, I kind of aged out on my Salesforce time, you know, cashed in my options, earned out on my RSUs, et cetera, and moved on and was recruited to, two, maybe three other SaaS companies to build that sales and marketing engine. Um, And sales operations, marketing operations was a big part of that, but I was building entire sales and marketing functions. And then the last time around, I eventually became COO. And I just realized like, I'm really passionate about this thing that doesn't have a name, but I am very passionate about it. Um, And what I'm not passionate about is being COO of a SaaS company where I have to participate in helping fundraise and close rounds and deal with a bunch of other stuff that I just, I didn't want to do anymore. So in many ways, for better or for worse, even though there's quite a few people, dozens and dozens of people work here now, Cloud Kettle, for better or for worse, is like, Greg really wanted to do one thing and didn't want to do some other stuff. And that is the company. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, first, thanks for the background. I, I think it's it's like kind of an important note that like you talk about how you how fortunate you were that all of these things came to fruition when you were early in your career and sort of starting this out, right? 
you also recognized that those things were going to be important, right? Like you were you were at the forefront not just because of timing, but also because you had the the foresight to say, "Hey, I think Google Analytics could be a thing," which which is very important. Yeah, I I, th- I think a lot of people who tell who say they're they're lucky honestly put themselves in positions to be lucky, right? Yeah. It's not it's not all luck. So I, I would imagine that's the case with you, Greg. I think a lot of it. So I do credit a lot of things to luck. I mean, you know, just the fact that I was born in Canada, had two parents for teachers who believed in higher education a lot. And like, you know, there's a mm. lot of stuff that goes into just appearing sure. on the map and yeah. even showing up for the job interview. Right? Oh, right. So there is a lot of stuff that's luck. But if you think about those items in particular, there was a certain amount of like, hey, I really think this has legs. There was at least an equal amount of, I really hate the portion of my job that is buying and selling radio ads. And I really hate the portion of my job that is buying and selling newspaper ads. And I really hate the portion of my job that is doing X. And if I could figure out a way for the company to make more money on this other stuff, I wouldn't have to do that anymore. So like, you know, I was the guy at that point in time, we had an insane newspaper ad budget. Like it was one of the largest spends that anybody in the company spent on anything. Um, you know, think about how much it costs to advertise movies in every major market across an entire country. And then the same on radio, which is what every movie theater chain in North America was doing. And I just slowly like stole that away every you know quarter, more and more and more of it and plotted into this digital stuff, which meant I didn't have to buy the radio ads because we weren't spending the money on the radio ads. And I didn't have to deal with the newspaper ads because we weren't spending the money on the newspaper ads. And not that those aren't still great channels, but at the time, a lot of my impetus for the digital stuff was to get away from that other stuff. Yeah. I also, I also love that we'll have listeners that are going to be like, wait, SaaS companies used to buy newspaper ads. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, people used to pay for ads in newspapers. That was the thing. Now it's all digital. Some some people still do. Uh, and, and the radio, but, uh, obviously like podcasting now would be like the version of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the things, Greg, that, that we've talked about in the past is, um, is, uh, you know, you, you sort of left working the leading ops at companies. A lot of reasons you've already mentioned around, you know, like I don't, didn't want to do fundraising. I didn't want to do those things. And like, yeah, more power to you. Who wants to do fundraising? I've, I've been involved in that many times and I hated every minute of it. Um, (laughs) But one of the things you talked about is the limitations specifically to rev ops internally, right? Running an ops team internally. I'd love to hear more about that because obviously it's a big shift from running rev ops internally to doing what you're doing now. Yeah. I think one of the biggest I guess, changes between all the preceding companies and then Cloud Kettle was I knew I was really, really passionate about what would now be called revenue operations, but didn't have a name. And I wanted to do that specifically. And I would go to these companies and I would do that, but then I would kind of graduate out of doing that and start doing all these other things. And eventually, in one case, like CEO of the company. So you're obviously doing almost no revenue operations at that point if you're actually being a good COO. And I realized (laughs) that was always going to happen. Like I was at the point in my career where there was no scenario where you could be ahead of revenue operations at a C-suite level or even a VP level because that wasn't a conceived of job. So knowing that I wanted to really focus on that, you know, my thought process was, well, how about I just go start a company where I do that and then we can do that really interesting thing for all these really big enterprises 
and I'll get to keep doing it over and over again because everybody's going to have to iterate on this stuff. And I really felt like it was a space that was going to grow significantly and there's a lot of room to expand within it. And most companies couldn't afford to have specialists like me. Um, and, you know, a lot of it was, hey, I've got this desire and passion to do this one thing. But if I go to a company to do it, I'm going to run out of super interesting stuff to do very quickly. Um, and then we'll get into this mode of, I don't want to, it's not that I begrudge optimization. We do a lot of optimization work for a lot of clients and that's very important, but there's only so many big projects you can do internally at one company in one year. And you just, that's it, right? Like nobody's going to buy X number of unlimited platforms. You can only deploy lead scoring once and then you iterate on it. You only deploy, hopefully uh, some of these platforms, you know, maybe you do deploy some of these platforms many, many times. You probably deploy, um, you know, a, um, uh, some of these more than once. Hopefully you only deploy a marketing automation platform once. Uh, but anyway, there's, there's a limit to what you can do in house and working out of house. I got to, you know, you deploy lead scoring concept and then you're iterating it on it on that company, but you've learned something and you're deploying it again a month later for another company. And what you deploy is immediately better because of everything you learned there. And a month later, you're deploying it again. So you're, you're like V1, V2, V3, V4, V5, V6 on attribution, on scoring, on speed to lead on each of these items at a pace of you might get at Cloud Kettle 12 releases a year, but only one a release a year if you're actually working in-house at the client. And that ability to iterate and you know learn and improve is, was very attractive. Yeah, it's like you uh, when you're in when you're internally at one company, you're you have a ceiling, right? Based on company priorities, yeah. company yeah. initiatives, you know, bandwidth in general, all, all of those things, budget, all of these things come into play to, to limit your ability to to basically experiment, try new things, and, and move fast and become an expert at something. And it sounds like you guys have the opportunity now to experiment, 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 experiment until you are the expert at something, like the absolute expert at it. Yeah, I mean, we have the ability or the luxury and, you know, I've graduated out of some of this stuff because I'm running the company. Uh, But, you know, we have the ability internally where we can have somebody who might deploy a lead scoring platform in different platforms in different ways 20 times a year. How many people are ever going to be that good at lead scoring or how many people can be that good at attribution? Or if we look at lean data, um, you know, how many people who don't work at lean data deploy lean data 15 times a year or work on 10 different lean data instances and that ability to iterate constantly and improve. And because a lot of our clients are in related industries, we also have the ability to say, oh, we just deployed this change to how lead scoring works at this client. We watched it for a month. There was an order of magnitude improvement and then go to six other clients and say, we just learned this. Let's deploy it for you and then deploy it and deploy it and deploy it and deploy it. And like basically almost, and you know, I guess this goes back to my SaaS background, like have that constant, like new release cycle going out for some of these things that most companies deploy once and then maybe improve once a year. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. How specialized is your team then? So, so you talk about like somebody might implement lean data 20, 25 times in a year. How, how specialized are the individuals on your team? They are pretty specialized. It depends on it depends on what the exact item is. So there's parts of, and I'll use Salesforce as an example, because we have three teams. So we have a BI team who are very focused on 
uh, Tableau, um, what was formerly called Einstein, which is now called Tableau CRM, and then data warehousing, so Snowflake, Google, um, BigQuery, Amazon Redshift. So, you know, they're very focused on that. Um, then we have a team which is marketing automation. So they are fairly specialized by platform, Pardot versus Marketo versus Marketing Cloud. And then we have a team that is what we call Salesforce Core, which is Sales Cloud, Service Cloud, um, what's now called Experience Cloud, which used to be Salesforce Communities, and then CPQ and other stuff that happens in that halo. Across all those many people, it does not make sense to have a bunch of people that are experts in lean data to have a bunch of people that are ex- experts at Salesforce communities, to have a bunch of people who are experts at Salesforce field service, which is how people with iPads, uh, you know, like the technician that comes to your door, right? Like you don't want dozens of employees to understand how that works. So we, we do tend to be very specialized. Um, and usually how that happens, it's not that we pick someone and say, okay, you're going to be the expert at this. What happens <laughs> is somebody is on one of those projects and they demonstrate an aptitude or a passion for it. And then the next time one of those projects come up, we remember, oh, um, you know, Chris was very into how Salesforce Maps works. We're going to deploy Salesforce Maps for this client. Let's pull him in for this. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy of after that. Well, then you're the Salesforce Maps guy because yeah. you've done three of them. Uh, and then it just kind of perpetuates after that. Obviously, we want multiple people who are experts in each of those domains because, you know, nobody's going to work here for the rest of their lives. And also people on multiple projects or they get sick, they take vacation, they go on maternity leave or paternity leave. So we need multiple people, but people do tend to be very specialized where they'll operate within a platform, but they have a specific area of domain expertise that maybe only one other person on the team has as well. Makes sense. Yeah. Go ahead, Brandon. No, I was just going to say that, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So when, when an organization brings you on, how much are you consulting on the strategy um, versus actually just doing the tactical execution? It's usually, I would say our work across clients tends to be a third, a third, a third. So a third is very high level strategy. And that is a partner slash executive sponsor. So a cloud kettle Every client has a partner or somebody's on partner track who acts as an executive sponsor. And those people are all like me. They have like a decade of experience in marketing operations, sales operations. And a lot of the stuff we're doing is, you know, as an example, for most of the clients that I oversee, I'm sitting down with the CMO or the CRO in September, some cases, July, August, and I am helping them plan out what their budgets for certain new platforms are going to be. And okay, you have an initiative for X this year. If you want to achieve that initiative, you're going to need a CDP. And here's all the considerations and timelines around the CDP. Here's a broad budget that's a broad enough pool of money that you put in your budget ask. And let's work together on the deck where you're asking for what your new headcount is for the people who will work on the CDP and also you know, you're growing by X, so you're going to need a new person, like an additional hand in the Marketo pool, and you're going to need X. So there's about a third of our work is very high-level strategy, even to the point where we're helping plan budgets and headcount and resourcing for the coming year. But then also other strategy like, okay, this is what the sales targets are. Let's work backwards on what that means for pipeline and what does that mean for attribution and so a third of our work is very 
very strategic and high level in that context. And then a third is what I would call very boring run the business stuff. So most of our clients have, it just is what it is, right? Most of our clients have very complex, like most of our clients are large publicly traded companies or could be publicly traded if they wanted to, but for a variety of reasons have desired not to. Um, they have instances of Salesforce and Marketing Cloud and um, Snowflake and Tableau that are so insanely complex, they can't keep them running internally. And so about a third of our work is retainer work where we are keeping those things running. We're keeping those machines running. And uh, they'll have Salesforce teams, but they probably don't have a Salesforce architect. And maybe they have one Salesforce admin, but maybe they need like three. So that's about a third of things. And then the other third is like special projects for those clients. So, hey, you're an existing client. Greg is providing all this strategic help or one of the other partners here is. We're on a retainer and we're providing all this assistance in Salesforce and Marketing Cloud and keeping the trains running. And in addition, you've decided you are going to deploy a CDP or you've decided you're going to deploy Tableau or some other major shift, or you've acquired another company, which we work with a lot of B2B SaaS companies. So at any given time, we're probably doing six Salesforce mergers of like tucking baby acquisitions into a mothership Salesforce instance. Uh, so that's probably the other third of that three-legged stool. So that, that answer the question? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. But I would I would have to imagine you get a lot of kind of that that like third or even that that second bucket where an organization has identified a need. They they think they know the strategy and they're just like, I need someone to come in and execute because I get people all the time who ask me, hey, do you have an agency for this, whether it's designs, whether it's ad operations, whether it's, you know, marketing automation help, they think they know what they need. So how often are you coming in and saying, well, like, you might need to rethink your whole strategy, right? And I would imagine you might even have to turn some clients down because what they're asking you to do is like absolutely insane, right? Yeah, it, it depends if it's an existing client or if it's a new client. If it's an existing client, we, we never have that problem. Like they, <laughs> nice, good. they get, they get it. They've worked with us. They understand. Yeah, yeah. If it's a new client, um, usually that first conversation is us probing, asking questions, tell us more about what you're looking for. And then, you know, we're asking the whys around the whys. So, you, you know, it's like mm-hmm, that five yeah. whys. Well, why do you want to do that? Okay. But why that? And so why important. This? Yeah. Why do you need a CDP? Okay. Well, you it's want to discovery, do this. Okay, right? well, like it's discovery. Yeah, it's exactly. It's discovery. It. Yeah. And yeah. as part of that, often without being jerks, like we don't want to be ignorant and we don't want to be rude about it. But a lot of it at the end of that conversation, they'll have realized that they've chosen, let's say, a platform or a path because they thought they had a need and we've brought them back to, okay, well, let's understand if this is the need, like, Oh, you think you need an ABM platform. Let's discuss why you think you need an ABM platform. And, you know, we'll delve into that and we'll be like, "Mm, you don't need an ABM platform. Here's what you do need to do. And great news. You don't even have to buy something new, but you do have to hire three people to do this other stuff. Or you think you need an ABM platform, but you don't have a content marketing team. So this thing's going to fail out of the gates because you're not going to be able to generate any um, sales enablement material or anything for any part of this funnel that the ABM platform is going to facilitate. So now you're just going to have another platform. Um, Congratulations. So, you know, there are a lot of those conversations. 
Uh, and so that usually happens with the new clients, but generally as part of, I mean, people are really intelligent. If you're at an executive level at the size of companies we're working with, you're not an idiot. And very quickly in those conversations, they usually say, so like, Oh, these guys probably know a lot more than me about that. And if they're not able to understand that they wouldn't have got the job they have in the first place in most cases. So, you know, that, change in tone and relationship and what they want mm. usually occurs very quickly. Nice. So I want to, I want to circle back a bit to specialization because there's, there's a, when, when I first graduated law school, you guys knew I was slipping that in at some point. <laughs> of course, uh, always. When I, when I first graduated law school, I, I worked with this attorney named uh, Kirk and uh, one of the first things he said to me was congrats, your knowledge of the law is a mile wide and an inch deep. Which was a polite way of telling me I know absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> uh, which which was very true and was actually a really good thing that he told me that about one month into the job. Um, and like over the course of your career, you you build sort of like spots, right, where it's an inch wide but it's a mile deep. And and Greg Leslie from Greg's team actually confirmed this. Greg's mile deep spot is attribution, um, ah. and and. and has a real hot take on attribution that I love, and I want to make sure we have time to go into detail for the audience because I think <laughs> it's really valuable. Um, and, and Greg, I'm, I'm going to totally put you on the spot to talk about this because I know you're passionate about it. So I think the important item there is that the person who runs marketing at Cloud Kettle is like, oh, yeah, I have the wonderful world of living and working <laughs> at a company where our CEO's number one passion is attribution, which if you're <laughs> a head of marketing... I mean, there's probably good points in there for her on that front, but it's probably a royal pain in the ass 99% of the time <laughs> if you work in marketing care. So, I mean, contextually, you know, part of the background I think that's important to understand there is at one point I worked at Salesforce. Uh, and saying I worked at Salesforce is the equivalent of Jordan saying he went to law school. So anyways, at one point I worked at Salesforce. And at that point in time, Salesforce's attribution model was uh, what they were what they call the four horses. And essentially those four horses are um, marketing generated. So marketing gets credit for this, uh, which is essentially stuff that gets pumped to the SDRs. There's what is outbound and BDR generated. There is cross-sell, upsell expansion, which belongs to CSMs and existing account salespeople. And then there is um, partner slash other stuff that's you know generally generated by outside partners. And that four-legged stool uh, was a first-touch attribution model, and they call it the four horses. And Salesforce actually, I think, still uses it, although I'm not 100% sure um, it, like at what depth. But if you look at people who spun out of the Salesforce ecosystem, either in marketing or sales, the companies they lead, those companies also use the four horses model. And I am a big fan of that model. Uh, so... We have a lot of clients who have significant resources and they can actually afford to have a data analyst and a data warehouse and a whole bunch of other stuff that facilitates having the most complex custom attribution model possible to create. Um, and that is amazing. It is absolutely useless for presenting to a senior leadership team or a board. So my hot take, I guess, to put it as Jordan would put it, is that Every company at scale, at scale specifically, because when you're small, you just should have one. It should be probably first touch. But at scale, every company should have two attribution models. So you've got the first touch attribution model, what I described, which is the four horses. So marketing, BDRs, cross-sell, upsell, or let's call it expansion, and then partner. 
Although maybe you don't have a partner channel, in which case it's three legs to the stool. But every company should have that as a first touch attribution model. And that is the model that is used at the C-suite and board level. And why is because it can be easily explained and summarized and there's no nuance to it. It is black or white. Something fell into one of these four buckets and there is only one bucket it could have fallen into. And then at a larger company, you start to slice and dice that. So you're looking at that as it's not as simple as if marketing is supposed to generate 40% of sales, it is not that marketing is supposed to generate 40% of pipeline. It's that for the SMB segment, marketing is going to generate 90% of pipeline. And for the ultra enterprise mega segment, marketing is going to generate 5% of pipeline. And for our enterprise segment, marketing is going to generate 30% of the pipeline and the MQLs or however you're going to break that down. But it's not as simple as, hey, marketing's number is 40%. It's marketing's numbers, these different percents of these different segments. And if you're really big, it'll differ by country because some countries like in Asia Pacific have a very strong partner motion. And so it'll be way higher for partner and smaller for marketing. But the entire bucket might be 40%, but it should be segmented on that first touch attribution model down through those different segments where on the SMB side, marketing is most of it. And then on the super mega enterprise side, marketing is very little of it on that first touch model. And then you get the idea. Yeah. Yeah. So ostensibly it's, you know, using four horses for the high level because you can explain it easily, drill in, and then your multi-touch internal internal decision-making informing the process. So that four horses is um, hopefully your big enterprise company has a pipeline council, which is your CRO, your CMO, your CEO, and then some technical people who are moving some widgets and presenting some stuff. You're meeting once every two weeks, maybe at the end of the quarter, you're diving into once a day. And in that pipeline council meeting, when you're looking at what that forecasting and all that pipeline looks like, you cannot go deeper than a first touch attribution model. So Four Horsemen works insanely well here. To do anything that's multi-touch, the minute you get into the room and you start to discuss how marketing is doing well or not well or sales is doing well or not well, somebody is going to start picking it apart and asking, well, why is this one this and why is this one that? And the minute that conversation begins, everyone lost. Everyone has lost. And so, uh, you know, I'll give credit to Brian Goldfarb, who ran marketing um, for the Salesforce App Exchange. And then later he was CMO at Splunk. And now he's CMO at Tenable. You know, he describes it as, you know, as a guy who runs marketing, he describes it as the most brutal attribution model in terms of how it treats marketing. But it's the best one because you never have to fight about it. Yeah. So that, that's what makes it the perfect model. And then in, within marketing then you have a multi-touch attribution model and different models will work better for different companies. So maybe we're using a W type model or a U shape model or whatever the case may be, but that makes a lot of sense within marketing because the purpose of that model is to optimize performance. And that is what marketing needs is a solution to optimize performance. And that's, that's key because if you go with the first touch attribution model within the marketing group, then you start to get errors where you're giving way too much credit to maybe events and no credit at all to things that are further down in the funnel. And you have a bunch of other problems. And if you're measuring attribution in a sophisticated way within the marketing team, 
that's when you start to see these like over and under performers. So usually what happens at most companies that we work with is once they get attribution working properly, you know, one thing that almost every time comes up is, oh my God, newsletter, which is the, you know, unsung hero of every marketing group. Newsletter is an outperformer every time. <laughs> you and are speaking it doesn't get any love. And it, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> get any love and it doesn't get any credit. And, it, you know, but once you actually look at it within an attribution model and how many touches it's getting and is it bringing people back into the funnel when they've been outside and not touched in a long time and all these other items, newsletters actually perform really great and they cost almost nothing. You know, yeah. they're using a bunch of infrastructure that exists already. Yeah. Uh, and they, they're, you know, talking about a bunch of content that some other group within the company paid to generate already. So, you know, they're a very low cost thing. So once you start to do that and look at a proper multi-touch attribution model, that's when you get to say, okay, we're going to actually plow more resources into the newsletter and make it once a week. Um, hey, these events that sales really loves doing, um, and seem really big and sexy. As it turns out, these are not good uh, from an attribution model perspective. They are really good maybe from a client maintenance perspective. Maybe they are really good from an expansion perspective, but they're probably garbage from like a first-time sale, new sale perspective. And they are insanely bonkers expensive. Uh, so, you know, you got, you need you need that multi-touch attribution model so you can start to make those decisions in an educated way and understand how to optimize performance within the marketing group, not just in lead generation, but marketing's job of aiding the sale all the way down the funnel to the day it closes. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that, hey, is there an open opportunity? Marketing should be working harder on that than generating leads because that opportunity was one of 300 leads that got all the way through how are we loving and caring and petting and feeding this thing to get it over the finish line? And are we running video case studies to these people at the final leg of the sale to demonstrate to them how other clients have had success with our company? And, you know, all that. I, I fully believe that marketing needs to be doing all those things. And you can't see that and optimize that without a multi-touch attribution model. Sorry, that was a lot. I get really excited about no, no, this topic. No. <laughs> this is awesome. So we, yeah. we've all sat in that painful ass meeting where, you know, somebody pulls up a crazy multi. I mean, we probably sat in one last week um, where, <laughs> where where that sort of happens. Right. And the whole meeting goes off the rails and it's a very expensive meeting because the people in it are all C-suites and and it's a it's a huge waste of time and everybody leaves misaligned and frustrated. Right. Um, and so, so I love the idea of, Hey, first touch is the deal. There's one scenario that terrifies me about that, which I have a, this is my question is how do you avoid the situation where you're in that meeting and we're looking at those numbers and we've all agreed, we're going to look at first touch and the CMO goes, guys, I understand first touch is bad, but if you look at multi-touch, we're doing great. We're doing great. How do you avoid that? I mean, it, well, A, involves a lot of coaching in the background of the CMO is to like, this is going to blow up in your face every time because as soon as they bring that up, sales almost always has a louder voice and a heavier hammer. And it's, it's a losing scenario for mm. the CMO to bring it up. The other thing is, like, when I think about what's important at that level, what's important at that level is, is each team that's supposed to be generating pipeline, generating the amount of pipeline that we need in order to not hit this quarter, but to hit the quarter after that and the quarter after that in each of these specific markets. Because if we have a bunch of French-speaking SDRs in France and the overall pipeline is significant enough 
um, but heavily weighted to the U.S., sure, that seems great. We've got our whole pipeline number, but we've got four SDRs that are going to start from France. They're not going to hit their number. They're going to quit because they're not getting comped. And the same thing is going to happen with sales. So, you know, the purpose of that pipeline council meeting is how do we understand that we are generating enough pipeline and it's quality and it's going through the appropriate stages so we can hit next quarter in every one of our markets or segments. So, you know, if you have people who are specialized in automotive, but you're blowing the doors off um, airlines and nothing in automotive, that's again, going to be a problem. So, you know, we're, we understand as the C-suite where our gaps are in this, that's the purpose of that meeting in those conversations and multi-touch attribution has no part in that conversation. Like marketing's efforts to get an opportunity that is in the final stage over the finish line before March 31st, the end of our quarter is not unimportant, but that is not what that meeting is about. And that's not what the people in that meeting need to understand. And educating everybody on that is the important part, because really what you're trying to discern in that meeting is we have a gap in EMEA and that gap is a pipeline gap that we can see now. And it's going to destroy sales in Q3. We can see it now. We're going to mm-hmm. have a really big problem in Q3. The decisions made in that meeting are around, we're going to now take some funding that was for events and marketing in uh, Amer, and we're going to reallocate that very quickly to EMEA in order to shore up what that pipeline is now so that those guys can hit their number in q3 that's that's what you want to be achieving i mean that's a very specific example but you get the idea that is what you need to be discussing in that meeting that's the high level stuff and that's the executive level move big buckets around of money decisions that should be being made and ideally marketing is going into that meeting knowing where those gaps are and in that meeting saying we know where these gaps are they're here and here and here's what our plan is to fill that pipeline so we don't have that problem in two quarters and that's much more important than marketing getting credit for, you know, that <laughs> thirty point multi attribution model. And look, I started as a marketer. I I get it. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been a CMO. I, I get yeah. it. But it just it it's a lose lose. Yeah, and it, it, and it takes coaching on all ends too, right? Because it's not just the the coaching of the marketing team. It's coaching the other execs in that meeting. Like, hey, this is the purpose of this meeting. It's not to come in and this meeting is not to come in and say, hey, marketing, you're failing. This meeting is to come in and, and look at where our gaps are yeah. and figure out what we're going to do as a business to fill exactly. those gaps and, and keeping it that way. And I think an advantage to the multi-touch too is it internally it will show how much alignment or lack of alignment there is between your sales and marketing teams on moving deals across the finish line. So that's a really important way to look at it. Yeah, I, I think it really underscores what we talk about a lot on the podcast, but I don't know if we've ever you know named it that much. But it's it's really having all of your um, your models built out, having those assumptions highlighted, gr- being crystal clear on all of your definitions, and then it's not it's because that's when misalignment happens, right? Either you disagree on definitions or stages or anything like that, or you disagree on where the um, pipeline or revenue should be coming from. But if all that's crystal clear in the first place, then you can jump into actually problem solving instead of just arguing, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a piece of this the thing that Greg said to me in our prep call actually. And I'm gonna segue us to this week on LinkedIn in a mo- moment, but I think there's there's a thing you said to me, Greg, that has stuck with me and I think will stick with me to my core probably for the rest of my life, which was 
you can crush every attribution model in existence because nobody can explain it in one minute or less. <laughs> and, you, like, and, and that's true, right? Other than first touch. Like I can explain first touch in a minute or less for sure. It's pretty straightforward. And, and anything that I can't explain in a minute or less, I should not be showing board members or execs, like period. Yes, and, and exactly. That. So yeah. that, that is the litmus test is you're in the boardroom. It is the pipeline council. And the CRO says, well, I don't think that's true. Explain to me how that attribution model works. The minute that happens and you can't explain it in one minute, you're, you're toast. You're, you're done. You're, the over. you're done. Yeah. You are yeah. done. And that's why I love that four horses model is it is brutal in terms of how harsh it is. And it, it favors sales in many ways because of how it's constructed. But there is no nuance. And you yeah. can explain it in one minute. Yeah. There's one, one tip that I got uh, early on uh, going into board meetings. Your, your marketing slides should be relatively simple, but have an appendix that basically outlines all of your assumptions so that you're not arguing with people in the board or with your internal team in front of the board, right? So here's everything that, you know, you need to know high level up front on my marketing slides. And if later you want to go into where I got that, go into the appendix of the board deck. And that usually satisfies people pretty well from my experience. Yes, although I, I the differentiation I would put on that in attribution is um, I don't know where you guys are at in terms of your life and marital status, but it, you know, <laughs> as as somebody who's married, it's it, you know the analogy I would say is there are certain conversations and arguments that as a married couple, if that conversation has to occur, you already lost. You, you know, <laughs> the the conversation well occurring is a lose lose for both people in the marriage. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, again, it's making it so that conversation doesn't even have to occur because there are no winners, Mm -hmm. you know, once it begins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think, Mm -hmm. I think the, the major takeaways before I segue is something the attribution, the two models, I love the idea of two models. One of them high level, right? Have to be able to explain it under a minute Salesforce four horse model. By the way, if you go into a meeting and they're like, why are we using this? You could say, oh, cause Salesforce uses it. And a lot of times (laughs) that will be enough. That will just be enough. Um, So look, look at your model that you're showing your execs and your board members. And, and if you can't explain it in a minute, fix that. That's an important thing to fix right away. And you can still use your multi-touch. You know it's really powerful. You know your, your marketing ops guy, your Jonathan Stevens, worked really, really hard <laughs> on that multi-touch model. It can still be used to inform a lot of things. Just don't use it in those circumstances. Um, I think that's a really good, powerful takeaway for everybody. And I want to segue us. Dave will make the noise here for this week on LinkedIn. And we're going to keep it pretty simple this week because Cloud Kettle is hiring. I think it's safe to say aggressively. Aggressively, Greg? Very aggressively. Very aggressively. Okay. (laughs) So Cloud Kettle is hiring very aggressively. I assume Greg is spending a lot of his time recruiting and and talking to, to ops folks and trying to do that. So, Greg, what what tips do you have for somebody applying for a job at Cloud Kettle or a job elsewhere that's going to help them shine for, for a business like yours? That's a good question. Um, I think that here's actually, let me start with what my fundamental premise on hiring is first. So my fundamental premise on hiring, which I learned from somebody much smarter than me who hired me at one point in time, which is make sure that every person you hire adjusted for age is smarter than you at the thing you are hiring them for. And if they are not, you have a problem. And that problem happens in two ways. 
One is that you think you're smarter than you are and you're going to hire this person. You're not going to trust them to do the thing they're supposed to do. And you can't get, you can't shunt work to them. The, the other is that you're going to hire people who are not adjusted for age smarter than you. And then you're going to have a different set of problems. So in the context of screening, what we're looking for broadly as a company, because we're hiring for a lot of different roles. So there's not like a, not a magical unicorn thing we're looking for. Um, we're looking for a couple of things across almost every role. One is that you've, you're a shelf starter. So we like to see things where you've taken a bunch of free training from Salesforce or you, you've got, you've gone out of your way to self teach yourself how Redshift can integrate with Tableau in mm-hmm. your free time. Cause that was a passion. Like we love to see stuff like that. But also what we're looking for is, is this human being likely to learn at a pace that will exceed our management team's expertise in these individual areas. And we don't expect you to start at that point. So if we hire you as a junior Salesforce administrator, it's not that we think you're going to be better than me at being a Salesforce administrator. Um, Otherwise we'd hire you as a senior Salesforce administrator. But what we expect is in that interview process and walking through those questions, this person will within an accelerated period of time, be a domain expert at this in a way that person X here that oversees them cannot be because for every person on top, you need to have several people underneath and each one of them needs to become a sliver of an expert in something. Um, And yeah, that's what we're looking for is adjusted for age. Are you going to be smarter than your manager? In a lot, in a lot of ways that is a capacity and desire slash passion for, for learning. Right. Cause like if, if those things are true, then, then yes, they will be smarter than their manager. Yeah, I mean, we're nerds and we hire other nerds. <laughs> like, like, you know, you you crack a joke about spreadsheeting here, a disturbing portion of the population who see that joke on Slack within the company are going to be very into that joke. Yeah. Uh, you know, Excel jokes are going to go over very well here. Database jokes are going to do very well. Like, we're, we're hiring a specific segment of the population to a certain extent. We recognize that. But... Part of that is those people in their free time are passionate about those things and learning about them and going and speaking. Like we hire a lot of employees. Yeah, Elliot Harper is a great example. Elliot Harper is considered one of the worldwide experts in marketing cloud. He's one of Salesforce's only like Salesforce designated MVPs in marketing cloud. And it's because he spent years teaching people about marketing cloud in his free time. And, you know, you can't train that. Yeah. You've got to, you got to hire for that. Yeah. Totally. I, by the way, I have a I have a WhatsApp group. I should introduce you to then because it's a it's purely dedicated to Excel questions and Excel puns, which is, <laughs> I find it incredibly enjoyable. Um, cool. I know we're, we're we've run a little long. This was awesome, Greg. Thank you so much for taking the time to to be here with us. I think this was super informative for everybody. I love the attribution modeling and, and more about uh, Cloud Kettle and everybody listening. He's I think the phrase was very aggressively hiring. So head on, head on over to Cloud Kettle and and uh, follow. Greg on LinkedIn and, and apply for those jobs because it'd be an awesome company to work for. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Thank thanks Greg. Much, this Jordan. was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Awesome. And everybody listening, thanks, if you guys. made it to this point, give us five stars on, on Apple and Spotify. Feel free to send us your messages on LinkedIn. Follow everybody, but Jonathan, because he doesn't respond and, <laughs> <Still doesn't. laughs> and be sure to give us a listen next week. Thanks everybody. Thanks guys. Thanks guys.